Good morning, everybody. Thank you for joining us this morning. Our guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Hal Kempfer, Marine Retired and CEO of GRIP Global Risk Intelligence Planning. And we're going to be talking about Ukraine and everything that's gone on. So much has happened since last time we spoke. Good morning, Hal. How are you? Good morning, Sherry. How are you? Doing okay. <laughs> the news is a little <laughs> distressing. And, I, you know, it's well, almost like, where do you start? So much has happened. Oh, it's uh, a lot. So much has happened to the few weeks since we've talked. But, well, a lot of significant things have happened. And, uh, you know, a couple of big things, obviously. Ukraine won the Battle of Kiev. That's huge. And, of course, sinking their flagship, uh, the Russian flagship, the Moscow or Moskva in the uh, Black Sea are the, probably the two biggest things. But uh, well, there's, there's, there's so many things to talk about. Yeah, yeah, I know that it's just like, okay, what is why does Putin think he can control Sweden and Finland and keep them from joining NATO? And well, why haven't they been um, placed into NATO? I mean, what's the process? Why haven't they been allowed into NATO? Well, they've always I don't think they've ever been blocked from NATO. Uh, Sweden historically has always been very neutral. Right. Even in World War II, they were a neutral country. So this is a huge political shift uh, for Sweden to decide that it needs to go in with NATO. Finland had always been basically pressured, controlled by Russia or the Soviet Union into maintaining neutrality coming out of World War II. So they they never they were they were never going to be part of NATO during the Cold War. But both countries have had this neutral neutral uh, tradition, if you will. But they've looked at this and, you know, they've just done the calculus and said it makes no sense for us not to be part of NATO. Uh, they've also seen if Russia does become more aggressive with all of its neighbors, being part of NATO is a very important thing because clearly that's where we draw the line in terms of where we're going to commit U.S. forces and where other European nations will commit their forces to fight. So they've really changed, and, and this could move pretty fast, surprisingly fast. Uh, there's discussion that Sweden and Finland could be part of NATO as early as June. That's stunning in diplomatic terms how fast that's moving. Uh, it's a huge amount of forces, too, that gets added to the NATO roster. Is uh, Ukraine going to have the same opportunity, or are they just going to say, okay, we're not going to do anything with Ukraine because of this war? That's uh, that's a $64 question. Uh, yeah. That's interesting. Uh, you know, I don't know because I'm not sure how this thing winds up in uh, Ukraine. Uh, President Zelensky has said that he would take uh, take becoming a member of NATO off the uh, off the off the list of things that they aspire to do if Russia would you know pull their forces out of Ukraine and stop the fighting. They're not so, going to do that. Well, that's yeah, that's the, I don't think they will. I'm not quite sure. You know, right now a lot of experts are looking at the fighting. This thing could go on for several months. It could potentially go on for years. Oh my God, uh, it's uh, it's just horrific what's happening. And um, you know, if if it becomes this long, grinding war of attrition, uh, it really depends on what happens with Russia. I can tell you that if it goes on for years, there ain't going to be a whole lot of Russia, economically speaking, left, because by that time, Germany will have cut off. Uh, all of its reliance on uh, Russian oil. In fact, for that matter, good good guess that Europe 
will have gotten some other sources for oil and natural gas by that time as well. And that pretty much means that Russia won't have much to sell. I, I, I don't know. I don't know where that, I don't know. I, I can tell you this, that uh, sentiment within Europe and within NATO right now, they would be glad to have Ukraine uh, probably join sooner rather than later, but obviously not the risk of triggering a third world war. Right. So. Right. What about Crimea? Are they, are they having second thoughts about, you know, just being taken over by Russia? Well, Crimea, uh, the population there is primarily ethnic Russian. They're, they're Russian speakers. This is all part of that Stalinist, uh, you know, it goes back to Stalin and what he did with moving ethnic Russians all over the, the various Soviet republics to try and create the Soviet man and woman that were that were uh, basically Soviet, but not ethnic Ukrainian or ethnic Georgian or ethnic um, anything else. And that and also Crimea historically for a long time was ruled by Russia. So there are a lot of ethnic Russians there. So Crimea itself. Many of the Crimeans there uh, see themselves, or at least had seen themselves, as Russian. Uh, however, President Zelensky, when he says remove Russians from uh, from uh, Ukrainian territory, he doesn't exclude Crimea. However, there was discussion, uh, an offer, if you will, that Crimea could be part of a 15-year negotiation, which would give Russia the ability to pull its forces back, maintain a presence in Crimea, and then go into a long, protracted period of negotiations. The thinking on that was 15 years from now, Putin's not going to be around. And uh, Hopefully um, he won't be around 15 days from now, but... <laughs> one hopes, one hopes. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think he's that long uh, for this world, uh, but... but you know, we'll, we'll see. The other the other thing that's out there is uh, they may make some uh, uh, offer. I don't think it's been formally offered. I haven't seen anything formally offered. But the thought that if Russia was to pull back to the uh, pre-February 24th lines, if you will, that they could put some sort of broader ceasefire agreement, maybe not a complete peace agreement, but a broader ceasefire agreement in place, which would allow them to maintain a presence in Crimea and that those limited areas of the Donbass that uh, Russian separatists controlled. Well, they haven't um, kept their promise on any ceasefire they've tried to negotiate so far, so I'm not sure I would believe anything Russia had to say. Well, they, they entered into these ceasefire agreements. I'll tell you, with, with, and this is why you're hearing so much discussion, to include from President Biden, um, you know, talking about, uh, you know, what, what type of level of violence what we're seeing here. Yeah. Uh, but uh, but yeah, every time they open, they'll, they'll put a ceasefire in, particularly for these humanitarian corridors, and uh, uh, then then they'll attack the humanitarian corridors, or they'll allow humanitarian aid in, and then aid workers end up getting killed. You know, it's uh, it's a pretty horrific mess. Whether it, right now, you know, it's, international lawyers would debate whether this actually constitutes genocide. But when I was you know, looking at, um, you know, things that are coming out over the last week, I have to tell you, it's really, if you look at Russian actions, 
it does appear more and more like genocidal intent. And intent yeah, they bombed a school, the, uh, a hospital. I mean, civilians. This, this, the, actually, not on the same scale of uh, of human loss, but in terms of how they see how Russia seems to be approaching uh, occupation in those areas they've occupied uh, within uh, Ukraine. There, there does seem to be similarities with their approach and what we saw with the Khmer Rouge in uh, Cambodia, that they will go through and, you know, basically pick out, uh, not not particularly discriminately, but they will pick out people they think who are in charge or, or, or whomever or whom they feel could potentially, you know, be a threat because of who they are or what they do, and then just go out and execute them. And... Uh, uh, basically trying to remove an entire strata of uh, civil governance that's not Russian. And uh, that looks very similar to to what we saw initially after the Khmer Rouge uh, took power uh, in Cambodia. That was, you know, before the killing fields, they right. were uh, gathering up leaders and uh, taking them out and just doing summary executions. Well, they, I had to, I heard on the news that uh, Russia was removed from the UN Human Rights Council, and my first thought was, how'd they get in to begin with? Oh, <laughs> you, you know, that's that, that gets into the whole issue of the UN and some of these things. That's always been. There's a number of nations that are in the uh, uh, United Nations uh, Human Rights uh, uh, Committee that that really. Uh, everyone scratches their head and says, how are they there? And that has to do with the United Nations. The United Nations has every country in it. And uh, some of those countries are just absolutely diabolical in what they do to their to, to other countries and, of course, to their own populations in terms of human rights. But uh, it's interesting to see that, that the U.N. finally found a voice you know, one of the things in the in the founding charter of the UN, uh, Russia and China are uh, permanent members of the uh, 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 you know of the uh, Security Council, and which means they're always there. Which means they also have a a uh, veto vote on whatever goes in there. Uh, the one exception, uh, and and they and they basically stop whatever whatever the the, the broader body of the UN wants to do because they can always veto it in the Security Council. The one exception was uh, Korea. You know, when uh, when North Korea invaded South Korea, the UN actually voted to uh, send forces into South, into Korea to, uh, to uh, enter into the conflict. And the reason why was because the Russians uh, gave one of their famous, ra- you know, rambling, uh, speeches uh, excuses yeah. yeah and then and then they marched out and when they marched out everybody looked at each other and said okay let's vote <laughs> <laughs> hurry up <laughs> it was, it was, i mean it wasn't quite quite like that but it was pretty similar to that i was like it was like well it was great historical thing it was like the u.n was kind of new then and uh and the russians kind of got out foxed and uh well, they've never done that since, though. They always show up for the votes now. So uh, but, uh. <laughs> they learn their lesson. <laughs> yeah, I was I was well. watching the news and I saw a lady from Russia being interviewed, and she was stating that Ukraine needed to be freed from their government, and that's why you know this war is going on. 
And I, I couldn't help but wonder, does she really believe that? Or was this one of those CYA moments, cover your assets? Um, because she knows <laughs> if she says something else, she'll get in trouble. You know, it's interesting. A lot of people look at uh, like what she said and, uh, you know, they come back and say, oh, you know, 90 percent of the Russian people uh, support Putin or 80 percent of the Russian people support what's going on there. And you think about it, it's like, OK, so how how do you do polling in yeah. Russia? Yeah. Well, I mean, you call up and say, do you support Putin or do you want to go to jail? Exactly. You know, I mean, that's <laughs> and so it's like, well, I guess I support Putin. Um that's kind of where they are. Uh, there really isn't any honest polling there. Uh, or voting. That, you know, or voting at, at all. But with that said, um, yes, there is this overwhelming, you know, this, this whole story. And, and the Russians, you know, with all the years of the Soviet Union and everything else, they are accustomed to this kind of Orwellian propaganda, if you will, or this Orwellian new, new think sort of thing if I could use Orwellian terms, where they, they get a story, and that's a story that they feel they have to go with. With that said, uh, this morning, the, the Kiev Independent uh, reported that the, the Ukrainian forces have assessed 20,000 Russians have been killed in action. Oh, my God. That's, a, that's an enormous number. And there is a thing that we talk about called the Mothers of Russia, and that was part of what that was part of the big impetus that overthrew the Soviet Union, you know, over 30 years ago, was the mothers of Russia when they saw all of their, you know, sons coming back in body bags from uh, Afghanistan. Uh, eventually, found a voice, and they had a huge, you know, had had enormous influence in the political uh, the political dynamic of what was going on in the Soviet Union. And that was, at that time, that was a decade-long struggle that uh, resulted in 15,000 killed in action. Now, we're, we're into this thing, what, eight weeks, starting the eighth week, two months in, and we're talking 20,000. And by the way, on top of that, you could multiply that by two or three uh, for the number of wounded who are taken out of action. And then you add on to that all the prisoners of war, all the desertions on the battlefield. You know, you're talking somewhere between sixty, eighty thousand, or more. That's that's an enormous uh, loss. And and if you look at the dilapidated state of Russian military medical services, yeah, a lot of those a lot of those people who are wounded end up having catastrophic disabling wounds because they have such poor medical support for their troops out there. So it's it's not quite civil war stuff where they just hack off arms and legs, but it's pretty bad. And so that has a cumulative flow. Now, some of the stuff going on there, they were actually telling families that they could not have public funerals of their sons who were being, who, who were killed and sent back. They, there was, they just climbed down to no public funerals. Wow. And, uh, and so that's part of it. The other, the, um, but eventually it, it will come back, you know, and, and if I may mention, the other thing that's going to come back, too, is uh, Russia's kind of got a little tongue twist. You know, Putin's got a little tongue twisted on the Moskva, or the, you know, the Moscow, the flagship of the, of the Black Sea that was sunk. You know, they put out this official story that there was an unfortunate fire that caught ab aboard the ship. They got into the ammunition. 
and uh, it cooked off and caused a catastrophic loss. And they were towing the ship back to port, and then it unfortunately sank due to high seas. That's their official story. The other, the real, the real story is they got hit by two Neptune missiles in a brilliant attack, where they used a drone to have them the drone to get their main radar to look another direction uh, from where the missiles are coming from. And it was it was a bad storm, and they shot the, these sea skimming missiles in, and all that three layer defenses that the uh, ship had, you know, probably the best ship in the entire Russian Navy. Uh, didn't see these missiles, and they plowed in and and basically caused a catastrophic loss where the ship sank. Um, well, now Russia is retaliating for this ship sinking, yeah. you know, firing missiles into Kiev. Okay, so their official line is it was an accidental fire aboard the ship, However. which does not look good. Yeah, that <laughs> doesn't look good because it looks like lack safety procedures, you know, uh, damage, you know, lack damage control. It just makes the Navy look rather incompetent. But but they're now retaliating for this accidental fire. In, uh, and, I mean, even even Russians who have been programmed to, to take the party line, if you will, have, have to be looking at this going, why, why is Russia retaliating against the Ukrainians for an accidental fire on a Russian ship? Right. That it's your incompetence. Yeah, exactly. Well, well, it also says, you know, there's something not quite right with the party line about this accidental fire. If there were, you know, because, you, you know, beneath the surface, there is a story that's floating around Russia that the Ukrainians sank their flagship. Um, not, not all that information is completely suppressed. It's just people say, oh, no, no, I'm going to go with the party line. But they know that there's a story that's floating around out there. The Ukrainians sank it. And now that now Russia is retaliating for for an accidental fire on a ship, <laughs> or <laughs> well, I so saw in the uh, news this morning that the the Ukraines have managed to send some missiles over to Russia and actually mm-hmm. have started bombing Russian territory instead of you know just taking hits from Russia coming into Ukraine. They're doing. They've been doing that for a while. They, uh, in fact, uh, uh, it's Volgograd, uh, uh, just uh, to the east. It's one of the main logistics hubs within Russia that supports their eastern campaign, which is now their main effort as they pull all forces out. Uh, they had a uh, uh, about I think two or three weeks ago. They had a uh, uh, a ammo dump up there, rather spectacular. Allegedly, Ukraine Ukraine never takes never claims credit for these strikes. I, they are very consistent. It's like, huh, that's interesting. Hmm, yes, we will observe that. You know, it's like their 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 operational security is pretty good on that. But they uh, an ammo dump, let's say, mysteriously blew up in the middle of the night, and then there was a fuel farm that blew up as well. And of course, what what you just what we just talked about the, the more recent thing. And 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 they also blew up a railroad bridge, and that's one of the the Achilles heels of the Russian uh, of Russia's military is they are very much reliant on railways to move men and material. They just don't have the they don't have anything like our interstate freeway or highway or freeway network. They they still rely on the rail. So when rail networks are taken out, it logistically causes disproportionate problems for them. 
In fact, in some cases, it just stops them cold. They can't move in tanks or anything else because they have to move them in on roll cars. So uh, some very, very smart stuff going on there. So I heard, too, that uh, Russia was recruiting. They need more military, so they're recruiting from Libya and Syria. What have you heard about that? They, they are. Uh, I've heard various numbers, various estimates of the thousands that they're recruiting from. Um, you know, there was a lot of discussion. They were going to bring up Syrians to fight, and this was in March. And uh, a lot of us who had looked at this said, that, uh, fighting fighting in Ukraine in winter is going to be a, a, a real wake-up call for some of those Syrians. Um, I don't think they're really used to that. But to bring them in, and they're not getting... You know, they're not getting the best troops. What they're getting is what's ever available. Russia right now is just desperate, and they're trying to pull in. They're, they're recruiting foreign fighters, mostly from Libya and Syria. And a lot of the serious stuff is really, you know, turning to Assad and saying, hey, we helped you out. Now you've got to help us out. And uh, so sending troops up there, I don't know how effective those troops will be. There's There's a lot of debate on whether they're going to really add that much to the fight. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's been a, bringing, if you want to, if you want to go and support the cause or if you're being forced, there's a different mindset there. There is. The other thing they're doing is uh, one April is when they do their annual conscription. So they, they've uh, done this mass conscription. Uh, don't know how many people uh, or how many Russians, uh, may have tried to duck out of being conscripted this year. That's a, the, no, there's no good numbers on that. But they did their nationwide conscription. They're also bringing up what they call reservists. Their version of reservists and our version of reservists are completely different things. Uh, their <laughs> version of reservists are people who served in the military at one time, maybe 10 years ago, and they're off doing something else, and suddenly it's like you've now been conscripted back into active duty. And so they're bringing all these folks in. It's going to take months before these any of these troops are ready to get into the fight. Although, with that said, Russia is somewhat brutal in terms of, uh, very brutal in terms of how they handle their own forces, their own troops. And they may rush them through some training and throw them out there. They're pulling troops out of Kiev, and what they needed to do was to pull the troops out of Kiev up north, spend months reconstituting those units, and uh, and then introduce them into that eastern uh, flank. Uh, what they've done is they pulled them out, and they've immediately moved them around. And with you know, there's already discussion that some of the forces that got pulled out have been thrown into the fight, and it's very haphazard how they do it. They they literally just throw them in and say, okay, go fight. They, these are not well planned operations. And as part of that Russian doctrine, where they just you know throw throw everything they got and see who's making the most progress and then reinforce that progress. That's that's old Soviet doctrine. That's old Russian doctrine. Uh, for the troops that get thrown into this, you know, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a horrific situation because they, they, a lot of times they'll walk right to the teeth of the enemy defenses or the, you know, the opposing defenses. And, uh, and they just get chewed up in a rather haphazard manner. It's a, uh, and, and these are troops that, you know, basically watched large amounts of their unit get wiped out by the Ukrainians in Kiev. In some cases, you know, a third, there's some estimates that some of these battalions may have seen half of the battalion wiped out. 
and they got pulled up north, quickly re- reconstituted and sent around to the east to fight. So you can imagine the will to fight, the morale of those troops is not very strong to begin with. So, um, It, it sounds it, like they, if they do do a ceasefire, it's just so Russia can regroup. And I, I heard that they've got a new leader, they have a single leader in charge of the war now, and somebody who's you know just as dangerous to humanity as Putin is. Do you think that's going to have an effect on this? You know, so far he's failing. Do you think this will be make a difference? Well, he he's not he's new, but he's not. He actually was he's the general that was in charge of that that eastern flank region. Oh, okay. And there were there were three generals that 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 Putin would have logically chosen, and if they had not chosen him as a singular commander, he would have probably had to have been relieved because of the political, because of what that would have said. He was the logical choice for that. Absolutely brutal. He was, he oversaw Russian operations in Syria where there were all sorts of crimes against humanity and all sorts of war crimes and, and uh, basically genocidal type of operations that the Russians were implicated in. Uh, he, he, his history goes back to Chechnya where he was in charge of that, you know, second offensive that saw just absolutely brutally crushing the Chechen civilian population and targeting them. So in, in terms of uh, being just a, you know, incredibly brutal uh, war criminal, yeah, he's, he's probably the logical choice for Putin. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, it, it was stunning up to this point that you would do something, that any country would do something like Ukraine and not have a singular military commander. But that's Putin. You know, he's, he's an intelligence officer. He doesn't think like a military officer. And in his mind, divide and conquer, you know, divide up the forces, maintain control at the political level. And as, as has been said over the last couple of weeks, Putin uh, thinks like a spook, not like a military guy or a military officer. And, uh, and he does this like an intelligence. He does this as a traditional intelligence approach without understanding the military characteristics of the conflict he just doesn't you know he does things that make sense if you're controlling spies and stuff but it doesn't make sense if you're if you're engaged in a major military campaign so he divides up control the various different areas and runs them all like a little independent operations so there's no central commander that allocates resources and logistics and makes decisions on which part of the front to uh to support instead that all went back to moscow and uh and that's just a, a, a just a, a really stupid way to run a war, and uh, um, and so now he's put it under one central commander. I don't know if that's going to make a lot of difference at this point. They have so dilapidated uh, the the Russian force structure across the board. Uh, not not to say there isn't a huge amount of combat power within what the Russians have, but they've so dilapidated that force structure that even putting it under singular commander is not going to make a a huge change anytime soon because you, you just, he can't, he can't change. He can't really change that much of what's on the ground. Moreover, he can't change the culture of the Russian military. You know, this, this, this military culture of poor planning and, and even worse execution, he can't fix that overnight. Yeah. You know, it's, it's been said, it's been said at the regimental and brigade level, uh, it would take years to reconstitute or, or to to fix all the problems with those staffs, in order to make them 
uh, competent. It, it, and that's just not going to happen. So I, I felt think, sorry for the guy because I thought, okay, I, you know, I know you're not a good person, you know, morally, you you don't have any respect for humanity. But if you don't do something constructive, Putin's going to poison you too. So I'm just like, <laughs> you know, here we go. You know what? We need to take a quick break. We'll be back in a few. Thanks for staying with us. Our guest today is Lieutenant Colonel Hal Kempfer, Marine retired and CEO of Global Risk Intelligence Planning. If you have any questions for our guests, the number is 520-790-2040. And we've been talking about Ukraine, things that are going on in Ukraine. And, and <laughs> it still amazes me that more help hasn't gone to Ukraine to make Russia stay where Russia is supposed to be. Uh, Putin apparently threatened the U.S. if they send any more military aid to Ukraine, they're going to, we are going to feel the effect of it. How seriously do you think that uh, threat is? Well, Putin's been threatening everything. Every time we do anything, he threatens. He's been consistently threatening all along. Uh, sending U.S. or, or any Western uh, arms or aid. This was a, obviously this was more of a, one of his more bombastic threats. This follows on uh, threatening uh, Sweden and Finland by saying the uh, nuclear-free Baltic will be over, uh, meaning that he will put nuclear weapons into Kaliningrad, which is a Russian possession that's on the Baltic, uh, Russian territory on the Baltic coast, and implying that he's going to nu- nuclearize um, that area. Now, the reality is that area is already nuclearized. Um, and, and that's, you know, Sweden and Finland and a lot of the other countries, you know, the Baltic states said there's already nuclear weapons out of Kaliningrad. You, so you're going to put more weapons in Kaliningrad? <laughs> um, and uh, because nobody ever for any second thought that Russia was ever telling the truth, and there was lots of intelligence to say they were lying about this nuclear-free Baltic to begin with. So that was kind of one of those idle threats that he throws out there, which sounds overwhelming, kind of like this. Don't know what he would do. Now, Tuesday, uh, in the force package of $800 million, uh, interestingly, there was 11 MI-17 uh, Russian helicopters that we had that were going to be sent to Afghanistan originally that got rerouted, and they were going to send them over to uh, Ukraine. Rather interesting big step because that's you know it's not fixed wing aircraft like the mig-29s in poland but but we're sending uh, aircraft over and uh so that was something we all remarked on and then quietly sometime around wednesday thursday that those 11 uh, 11 helicopters kind of fell off the force list for whatever reason i don't know what their status is right now and there may have been some logistics issues as to why they felt they couldn't ship them but it was a it was a kind of a fascinating ad. The other thing that happened this week, though, was Slovakia, which doesn't have a lot of aircraft, period, but does have a number of Russian aircraft to include MiG-29s. We made it known that we would not uh, oppose Slovakia transferring MiG-29 aircraft to Ukraine. That's it's not huge numbers. I think we're probably talking ten or less, but. Uh, once they do that, that brings up the issue of the, the larger number of MiG-29s, about 28, I believe, that we were talking about from Poland that could potentially be transferred to uh, Ukraine. And if you look at the entire force list 
of Russian equipment that Ukraine could easily take in and immediately put into effect because they're already trained on how to use it, that's across the Eastern European NATO nations. Uh, it's pretty significant. And, and also, I think about a week or so ago, uh, we, we allowed the transfer of T-72 tanks and uh, what's called BMP armored personnel carriers uh, to be shipped. Not a lot. I think it was like it was uh, five tanks and five armored personnel carriers on a rail car, which was a little underwhelming, if you know what I mean, in terms of numbers. But right. the fact that we're moving that equipment over was significant. So, um, you know, Putin's feeling the effect. He's, he's looking at those numbers. It's not just the number of troops killed. Uh, they've lost, I think, around 370-some tanks. They've lost almost 2,000 armored personnel carriers, not to mention the hundreds of artillery pieces. They've lost, I think, about a, uh, you know, about 150, a little under, around 150, give or take, of, uh, of helicopters and the same number of fixed-wing aircraft. Uh, and and then there's all sorts of other things, uh, even drones. Interestingly, I was looking this morning, the Ukrainian military reports that they've shot down 135 Russian drones. That's The Russians have drones, but they don't have a lot of drones. So for them to lose 135 drones is a significant loss. And it also speaks to uh, Ukrainian air defense that they were able to target drones and take them out. It's so he's feeling, you know, Putin is feeling the effects uh, across the board. You know, not just the, the, the Moscow, the Mokva, that was uh, that was sunk. Obviously, he feels that probably most acutely. But across the board, he's looking at all these numbers. And, and he's also realizing that they're going to have a tough time sustaining the fight because they're literally running out of tanks and armored personnel carriers to throw into Ukraine. So... Yeah. Some of the the propaganda that he likes to use, the heaps, I I heard it, I'm obviously not in Russia, but I heard that they use a lot of uh, Tucker Carlson's news clips over there as as propaganda for their for their people to listen to. Well, that's that's what Putin's been doing is if, if there's anything in Western media that is uh, in any way pro-Russian, um or anyway, an apologist for what Putin's done, they will snip that and they will run it over and over again. And Tucker Carlson has said some things that uh, you know certainly sounded pro-Russian. Yeah, and, it makes uh, you so wonder they, where his allegiance is. Well, I, I just I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah just you know, he, I've heard some of those things he said, and it's like uh, I'm not quite sure what your thinking is, uh, but uh, he has said some things and. Uh, and and it was you know made for made for propaganda purposes for Putin, and so they took those and they they package them up to make it make it sound like uh, you know there's leading voices in America are are actually you know against the White House and against uh, Biden. You know the reality is, uh, and certainly in U.S. polling, uh, consistently huge in fact really big shift in the polls since the beginning of the year has been in favor of uh, U.S. support for Ukraine and everything that we're doing. You know, not to be confused with, you know, the president's approval ratings. That's another issue. But but far, as far as the U.S. Uh, supporting Ukraine, that's one where the country has, you know, our country has certainly come together. And, and I should mention the NATO countries have come together on that, too. They Across the board, the shift in NATO sentiment 
uh, you know, the change, it's not just Sweden and Finland, across Europe, uh, with maybe the exception of Serbia and Hungary, that's another issue, but, uh, but across Europe, uh, uh, a lot of countries that were kind of equivocating at the back in, you know, latter February, they're not equivocating anymore. Germany is probably the most dramatic transition. I mean, they, they went from being kind of, you know, straddling the fence, if you will, to now they found a new voice and uh, they're, you know, up, you know, significantly increased their amount of money they're spending on defense. They're shipping weapons over, um, you know, the pounds of trust, uh, three anti-tank weapon. They've been shipping that over at a pretty regular clip uh, along with other things. So it's, uh, you know, there's a lot of support across the board. It's, uh, I don't think Putin planned on that. He thought he was going to split NATO and, and he saw the U.S. as weak and vacillating, and uh, that has turned out to be exactly the opposite. So, well, I, I read a report, and the next day it was it was different. I heard that Belarus was actually on the side of Ukraine, had changed their mind about what they were doing, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're they're siding with Russia again. Was there any truth to that? Is are they being wishy washy, or is that just more propaganda? I'm not sure which report you saw, but uh, within Belarus, there has always been a very strong anti-Lushenko movement. Uh, Lushenko being the autocratic, you know, Russian puppet who's in charge. And so there was always this, and, and they were brutally repressed. I mean, he went in there with his forces. He rounded them all up. He put them in prison. I mean, Belarus is just one of those really bad actors. Uh, when you look at how they do things. And so that was always right below the surface. So there's a strong sentiment that you will not be able to ever pull publicly uh, within Belarus, that the Belarusian people are not not at all pro-Russian, uh, and, and a number of them are actually very pro-Ukrainian. Now, with that said, there's actually a group of Belarusians uh, who are fighting. They actually went down to Ukraine, and they're fighting to liberate Ukraine. And they're, 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 they're basically their, their motto, if you will, is that first they're going to kick the Russians out of Ukraine, and then they're going to kick the Russians out of Belarus. And uh, they're not a huge group, from what I can gather. I mean, we're talking maybe hundreds, maybe. Uh, so it's not a large formation on the battlefield. But it's interesting. It'll be interesting to see if it picks up steam. Uh, you know, the other thing, too, is if Russia eventually ends up in a crushing defeat in Ukraine. You know, there are those second, third order effects. And because Lushenko has gone all in and basically handed over his country as basically a Russian province, effectively. Right. Uh, it, it's, it's kind of seen that if, if Ukraine completely crushes, which sounds amazing to say this, crushes the Russian military uh, within Ukraine and kicks them out completely, that one of the second-order effects would be that uh, Lushenko loses um, any legitimacy to lead. And you could see a, 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 a rapid shift in public sentiment within Belarus saying, we need to reclaim our independence as well. And uh, and it could turn into 1991 all over again, you know. Yeah. So That's yeah. kind of scary. I it's 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 interesting. Well, I, I think you may see that, uh, you know, a lot of these, you know, you just saw right before the invasion, 
uh, Russia-assisted Kazakhstan in putting down uh, massive civil unrest. And, uh, uh, you know, they're not going to have those troops available. If, if something like that were to blow up in Kazakhstan again, I don't think there's Russian forces available to go down and help Kazakhstan uh, with with repressing civil unrest or even a re- an outright rebellion. And so it could trigger, you know, 1991 was a fascinating year. And, uh, you know, 89 through 91 was just absolutely fascinating with how fast the Warsaw Pact countries, you know, unraveled as far as being Warsaw Pact. And then... Uh, and then uh, what happened within Russia with all the, you know, the Soviet Union basically falling apart, you know, by the end of the year. So it sounds like Russia is, is becoming more and more isolated globally. I think I think, you know, there, you know, at the beginning of this thing, there was a lot of speculation that if Russia keeps going this direction, they could become a North Korea. Yeah. And I think I think at this point we're looking at it. And uh, if they do keep going this direction, I don't think that's a, uh, 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 a a wrong analogy as far as what's going on, particularly as you're seeing uh, Europe cut off imports of Russian oil and then uh, and then also cutting, reducing and eventually hopefully they will cut themselves off of the reliance on natural gas. One thing I would point out, is, you know, there's, we've had this back and forth, you may have seen in the last week, we had, uh, uh, you know, Prime Minister Modi uh, was uh, was over, was talking to, uh, uh, at the, I believe he was at the White House, uh, from India. And India has always had a rather close relationship with Russia historically. They, use a, they, they rely on Russian uh, arms, weapon systems and stuff, as far as their military. And so as Russia's decreasing the amount of, uh, oil exports to Europe, he's trying to offset that. And India is one of those places he's looking at uh, selling a lot of oil to. Well, a couple things. Even though Russia is making about a billion dollars a year selling, or a billion dollars a day, I'm sorry, selling oil, um, they're having to sell it at a deep discount. However, to get that to, to get that oil from Russia to India and some other places, they don't have the pipelines that go over that direction. All the pipelines went the other direction over to Europe. So they have to do it by tanker. And those tankers have to come out of the Black Sea. Well, the Russian naval activity in the Black Sea has caused enormous problems, not the least of which is they appear to have just released a bunch of floating sea mines all over the Black Sea that are showing up in places like Romania and Turkey. Just, flo- you know, these are old, some of them are old World War II sea mines that they just released just to clog up the Black Sea to stop uh, stop traffic. Well, yes, it stopped maritime traffic to Ukraine, but it also has caused uh, massive insurance premiums for any shippers going to the Black Sea to get oil from Russia or anything else. So a lot of times now the cost of, of having a, a, a tanker, for example, going to get oil, it costs more to to pay for that uh, insurance premium that does the cost for the tanker to get the oil back significantly more. So that has slowed up, if not stopped oil and other shipments of commerce uh, out of, from Russia uh, going to the rest of the world. So they're selling their, they're selling their oil at a deep discount and they can't even move the oil. And, uh, and, and that's, that's going to have a cumulative effect on Russia's uh, ability to finance a war. You know, 
So what? Okay, uh, these these mines that they how does how do they get removed or do they well, do they just blow well, up? We, well, that's one of the, that's one of the options uh, is they just blow up. Uh, we you know um, most Western nations have a certain amount of uh, of uh, mine sweeping capability where we can go through the waters and mine sweep. You know the mines are basically designed so they're not supposed to be easily observed. That's the purpose of mines, or sea mines. Uh, but to to go through and and to clear all these mines, particularly the way Russia did it, which uh, is just basically releasing them into the Black Sea and letting the currents carry them. Who knows where these mines are? So it's going to take a while to clear out all these mines from the Black Sea. And even even after they've done a, a fairly extensive sweeping operation, there still may be a few mines out there. And, you know, heaven forbid they hit a ferry or some other ship transiting the Black Sea. Russia basically uncorked a big problem that's going to take a long time to fix. And uh, and the biggest impact that's going to have is actually on Russia itself, because, um, you know, that's that they're they're really dependent on that Black Sea uh, Ocean, you know, maritime. It sounds uh, like he just traffic. shot himself in the foot. He, he did. He did. <laughs> we would say in the military, we would call it a self-inflicted headshot. There you go. You know, that was just it was really that was dumb what he did. But, you know, it's like, ah, we'll show you. We'll cut off the Ukrainian exports. And we'll cut off ours. Okay. And, uh, you know. You know what? I know May 9th is uh, Russia's victory day. Typically, you know, like dictators like to do, they have their eagle parades showing off their military and their equipment. It sounds like they don't have much of a military left and their equipment's kind of stranded all over Ukraine. In my head, I envision Putin sitting there with cardboard cutouts getting ready for this parade. What do you think is going to happen on on May 9th? Well, most experts assess that uh, you know the, the 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 victory parade, which you know, which is basically a celebration of World War II. However, for Ukraine, our Ukraine, for Russia, that's called the Great Patriotic War, and it almost has a mystic quality within a Russian uh, Russian mindset. You know, as far as their great victory. Because they lost about 20 million <clears throat> plus Russians in World War II, so it's a it's a huge thing in the psyche, the Russian psyche. Putin wants to declare some sort of victory. You know, he wants to declare some sort of great success in Ukraine on May 9th, and one could see semantically he may turn around and say, "We have denazified the Ukrainian government," and. We have secured the territorial integrity of these, you know, these two independent republics, um, you know, Donetsk and Luhansk, the Donbas republics, and we have secured, um, you know, Crimea as part of Russia. One sees him trying to to say that by May 9th, and that's one of the reasons that that you that we see. That's probably one of the reasons I should say that we see. Russia is so quick to, to take these forces that, that they call reconstituted that haven't really been reconstituted and just throwing them into the fight like cannon fodder on that eastern flank, on that eastern uh, front, if you will, uh, knowing full well he's going to get a lot of people you know, killed and cause tremendous losses on his end. But he is desperate to, uh, to claim some sort of victory. And that's, again, he's not thinking like a military guy. He's thinking like a, you know, 
uh, an intelligence guy or a maybe a politician, you know. And so he's doing this stuff at tremendous cost, and it may fail, horrifically fail. And uh, so, and if he can't claim any sort of victory, I mean, semantically, he will try to claim a victory regardless. But but if he really can't claim any significant victory, that could be a crucial date politically for him uh, in terms of how the Russian people perceive whatever's going on with this military operation, this, you know, what we call invasion, which is an invasion of uh, Ukraine. Do you think the Russian people would significantly get him out of power or is he there for the duration? Uh, I'm not going to get overly optimistic and think that they're going to be able to throw him out of power, you know, quickly. But then again, um, you know, who would have thunk that that the Soviet Union fell the way it did as quickly as it did? Uh, I certainly would have guessed that, uh, you know, coming, you know, when I was over in Desert Storm, I came back in the summer, if you will, you know, or in the spring, summer. And uh, we had defeated the, you know, the Iraqi forces with the Russian doctrine, Russian weapons and everything. So we kind of kind of tore away the paper tiger, if you will, or, or of, of this great Russian military capability. Um, who would have known that that would snowball so quickly into a loss of Russian Russian popular confidence uh, in the Soviet Union, and which it, 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 it did. It's one of the major contributing factors was, you know, the Russian military was the center of gravity that the Russian people and, and certainly the Soviets believed in. And then when their proxy gets wiped out so quickly, uh, it kind of shook their confidence. So uh, I think this might have a similar type of effect when they look at, you know, because, you know, Putin put out a lot of propaganda about, you know, that he was, you know, transforming the Russian military, <clears throat> that they had this huge, you know, change and all this modern equipment stuff. And here they are going in to invade a, a, a much smaller country, and they're getting their clocks cleaned uh, consistently. And, you know, you can only hide that for so long. So, That's no, true. It, it could snowball. It could snowball. But it's not going to be something where – if it happens, though, you know, historically, when these things change, they can change very quick. It'll be stable, stable, stable. And then, boom, within a few weeks, the whole situation could turn upside down. Well, that's what I'm wondering. We only have like a minute left. That's what I'm wondering about China wanting Taiwan. Do you think that all this distraction, they're just going to swoop in and take Taiwan? I think actually it's it's probably, most experts would say it's had the opposite effect. Okay. That they're now looking at their plans for Taiwan. They said, eh, I'm not so sure we're ready to do this yet. And they've looked at this uh this levy and mass, this popular defense, if you will, that the Ukrainians put together, they're probably looking at something even bigger that they would face in Taiwan and thinking we could be running into the same issue even worse by going into Taiwan. So it probably pushed them back several years in the planning. Yes, it's hitting a hornet's nest. <laughs> it yeah. is. And yeah. I, I really don't think Putin thought, you know, Ukraine was going to fight the way they've been fighting and get the support they've been getting. I think he thought it was a cakewalk and it isn't. Yeah. I think the Ukrainians actually outperformed just about everybody's estimates. I don't think anybody thought they would fight like this. Although I did note uh, at the very beginning that the will to fight 
with the Ukrainians appeared to be extremely strong, and the Russian forces appeared to have some deep systemic problems, particularly in the, the will to fight of the troops. So anyway. Well, I want to thank you for coming on and, and bringing us up to date on what's going on. I hope all this ends soon. And there's no hope for that. But until next week, I want everybody shop local, stay safe. And Hal, thanks so much for coming on and talking to us.